Welcome to Peace Lab. Welcome back to Peace Lab, I should say. Thank you for your your loyal patience as we uh, underwent some reconstruction, as we uh, worked on some things on the unseen portions of Peace Lab on the inter- internet, and as we say goodbye to Hannah Heinzecker, our fantastic co-host for so long in Peace Lab, and now as we welcome aboard a new co-host. Gotten a lot of emails from folks who said, okay, cut the games, just tell me who it is. And of course, I couldn't violate that. It was, it was a sacred blog post that was written that said it will be revealed on this day. And so I'm happy to welcome Melissa Flora Bixler as new co-host of Peace Lab. Melissa, welcome and thank you for devoting your time to Peace Lab. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. I know a lot of folks are familiar with you through your writing and speaking and, and different uh, minnow media paths that you're on, but I wonder if you'd like to take a second to tell our listeners who is exactly Melissa Flora Bixler? Sure, Jason, I can tell you a little bit about what I do. I am the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church, and I have served that congregation for almost two years. Before that, I, I served another church outside the denomination in Durham, North Carolina, but have been in Mennonite churches all around the country. Uh, Portland Mennonite, I was at, up at Oxford Circle Mennonite Church in Philly when I was in seminary, but started off right here at Chapel Hill Mennonite when I was a student at Duke University. I'm a convinced Mennonite, came to the church through my convictions, convictions I reached through discernment, uh, learning about peace and pacifism from the people at Chapel Hill Mennonite. And uh, yeah, so feel right at home and talking about what it means to be a peace church here alongside of all of our guests. You, you really circled in on it. That's sort of the, been, been the underlying question that we, that's been sort of the thread that weaves through all our Peace Lab episodes is, what does it mean to be a peace church? And especially in, in a new time, in a new context in 2018 and you know, the, our nation's been in perpetual war since 2001, and it's just become normal. But then on the on the domestic side, we've become uh, much more aware of uh, injustice and uh, systemic issues that have plagued us since the, the dawn of our country, uh, and getting more active in, in recognizing and speaking out against those. There's just so much going on that uh, this is a question that for us to continue to think about. I'm wondering, from your perspective, you know, all those things as, as a convinced not convicted, uh, or maybe convicted Mennonite, uh, and as a pastor and pacifist, I don't know, how would you define, what, what is a, a peace church in the 21st century? What does it look like, and what are its traits? As I think about that question, that gets back to one of the aspects I think of we, when we think about peace is just how we're constantly trying to figure out what it is. Um, I think you know, in North Carolina, we're not in a place where there are traditionally a lot of Mennonites. So I think we actually find ourselves asking this question and being asked this question more directly. What does it mean to be a pacifist? What does it mean to uh, be a be a peace church? And and I think we have to offer up some humility in saying we're always discovering that answer to that question um, as new sort of issues and new questions arise for us. So it feels like um, rather than saying, um, as maybe we did in the past, that non-participation in the military is is what defines pacifism, I think we're seeing that more holistically. We're asking questions about what we eat and what we do with our time and where do we shop and what are our jobs and uh, how do we think about our involvement in politics. And if we're going to be a peace church, I think it probably has to do with something with our whole lives. I don't know. What, do you th- what are your thoughts, Jason? Well, no, that, that reflects very, very much a lot of my thinking, just in terms of the, the holistic uh, aspect of it. 
And again, I think for me, as, as another person coming in sort of from outside the Mennonite church, I, I didn't come in through, you know, through that fine line of, well, it means that you forswear all violence and military service, although that's certainly a part of it. Uh, you know, what convinced me was Shalom and thinking about right relationship. And, and what does it mean when things are working as they should, how, you know, how, how God designed things and how they should work and knowing that includes, but it, it doesn't stop. You know, when you, when you talk about guns or you talk about death penalty cases or other things like that, it, it's, it's, it's really relational. Uh, and it goes at all levels of society, which, which is for me, why I think we're living in a time where, and you know, theologically, this has been true for a while. Like a lot of people who are interested in theology, they're very interested in Anabaptist theology. Like the, you know, this sort of a, a hot thing for the past, five or more years is Anabaptist theology. And I, it just seems more and more maybe that just the idea of a peace church is, is becoming something that more people in our society are looking for. They're looking for some overall meaning and everything that would draw someone to, to church in general. But then when you think about specifically, it seems like a peace church is, is shaped to meet the needs of people uh, in, in the time that we're living in. And this is, you know, we have a, a podcast in the archives with, uh, with Megan Good at Trinity Mennonite in, in Arizona. And she was talking about how do you introduce this idea of, of peace and pacifism in a peace church to people who, who don't know it? I'm wondering for you, because yeah, you're right. We're, we're here in Raleigh and you know, we've got a great Mennonite church, you know, the one. And so we don't have a lot of Mennonites around or even a lot of, I guess, people who would be, call themselves pacifists. Do you have an elevator speech or do you have a, like, how do you introduce people when they say, Oh, you're a pastor. What's the church, et cetera, et cetera. How do you invite them in, in those instances into to understanding what, Mennonites, pacifism, or a peace church might be? Yeah, I, I find myself in those kind of conversations all the time. And, you know, once we get past the, you know, the fact that I'm not wearing a bonnet or driving a buggy, um, can sort of get into the more rigorous aspects of our faith. And I always start off by telling people that we believe that Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. And then sort of, sort of stop there. And I think there's this, oh, yeah, of course, you know, everybody says you're supposed to love your neighbor. And that's when I say, but I'm, but really, like to the point where where we that we refuse to engage in forms of violence against our neighbors, and we do that through our commitments to anti-racism and anti-sexism and um, opposing gun violence, and um, trying to find ways to have processes where we dialogue together and listen to each other, and and I think that's where people start to realize, oh wow, this is a uh, this is pretty serious what you're, what you're talking about. It was funny. The other, we had a new member class recently and at the end of it, um, somebody said, wow, Mennonites sound really great. Just why aren't there more Mennonites? And then uh, the news came out about uh, the woman in Colorado who was, was going to jail for refusing to testify in a death penalty case because she didn't want to contribute to the death penalty it was against her religious beliefs. And, I just thought this is why, <laughs> because if you really are going to take this seriously, um, it's going to put you at the fringes of probably what is sort of an acceptable tolerance for violence, an acceptable tolerance I think that we're all pushing against, and that Christians have to constantly figure out how we follow Jesus in the midst of that. And yeah, and speaking of, I think you said it, like gun violence, you know, of course, we're all still in the aftermath of Parkland, and, you know, maybe things are... are they're reconfiguring and there will be some change there. But I know in the paper here in Raleigh, in the News and Observer, they were talking to different religious and, and church folks about gun violence. And they talked to you about it. And you had a line in there that I thought was, was very good. And I think it, it goes back to our question about what does it mean to be a peace church. But 
I believe you said something like, you know, it's you're following Jesus every day. This is mm-hmm. uh, this is about this is everyday discipleship, and, and I think that that's the key too. That's a, a distinctive. It's and you can sort of again like mentally assent to all sorts of doctrines and ideologies, and it, it really doesn't matter. You know, I, I'll tell you, I'm an English sheepdog. If you know, if if something's important, because it, it's it's not going to affect me. But if every day I'm going to take a you know, face the world with a with an attitude that says, "No, I'm going to love my neighbor," and that means I'm going to want the best for them, and I'm going to eschew violence. Then I guess my life my life should look a lot different. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's right, and that, and I think that's why people are drawn to the Mennonite churches that I've seen. Is what I always hear people say about our church, and this is true about every Mennonite church I've been in, is that they feel like there's people who really went into places that were, were violent at the, at the peak of violence to be a witness to peace. I remember there were Mennonites at Portland Mennonite who were in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive. <laughs> and, and so while other veterans are ce- celebrating Veterans Day, they're remembering these people in villages who they loved who were killed by the U.S. military. And, you know, people in our congregation who are immigration lawyers or who could have had lucrative careers as doctors in the United States and went and served in some of the poorest places in the world. And that's, that's why I'm a Mennonite is because I heard one of those stories about Peter Dula who served in Iraq during, uh, during the war for MCC. And I'd never heard that story before. I'd never heard about Christians going to places of war without a gun. And I was changed. I was changed by that story. And I continue to be changed to be converted to the gospel of peace by the witness of others. I think we've got a lot of conversations ahead of us, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to them, to discussing things with, these things with you and, and the guests that we're going to have on. So again, you know, we're, we're all going to welcome Melissa on board here on, on Peace Lab and uh, look forward to getting to know you more and, and having these discussions. All right, great. Great to be with you all. We look forward to a lot of conversations with Melissa in the future, and we want to take a chance now to say thanks to our good friend Hannah Heinziger for all the work she did for Peace Lab. Hannah was there from the beginning, of course, and uh, she helped organize a lot of these interviews and was a great co-host. And I'm glad that we have one interview left that you have not heard that Hannah helped co-host, and it is an exciting one. It's one with Jana Hunter-Bowman, Assistant Professor of Peace Studies at AMBS. We get really deep with Jana. We talk about some of her own faith formation experiences and peacemaking, including her time in Columbia, uh, and we also talk a lot about the peace process there and, and really sort of get a behind-the-scenes look at, at the hard work of peace building. And then we also talk about uh, her work at AMBS and how she approaches that. A great episode. You're really going to learn a lot uh, about Jana and then via Jana uh, a lot about uh, peacemaking and Columbia. And this is a great episode. Uh, thanks again, Hannah, for all you did. And thank you for listening. Uh, enjoy this episode of Peace Lab and this interview with Jana Hunter-Bowman. Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast, about current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I am Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network, always in the Peace Lab here with Hannah Heinziger. Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm good. So we're recording this in January, and it's real cold here in northern Indiana. It's negative 12 outside. So I'm hoping that by the time people are listening to this, we'll have had like a little bit of a warm up. I didn't want to bring up how cold I am here in North Carolina when it's like in the 20s, because I know that that's, that's impossible. No. Not even fair. Hey, it's a deep freeze, but we're going to have a great conversation today. I was looking forward to this. Uh, I've got to talk on the phone just a little bit, like maybe 10 minutes with Jana Hunter Bowman at one point and wanted to, to talk more and haven't had the chance. 
But then this interview came about. So I'm really excited about talking to Jana today. What's your relationship with Jana? I think it was your idea to say we should have her on the podcast. Well, yeah, I've just read some things that Jana has done. I've heard many stories about you, Jana, from your AMBS colleagues. All good. good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Quickly added. That's right. (laughs) And it just seemed like Jana is a person who would be very interesting to talk to on Peace Lab, who's lived in a way that maybe embodies what we're trying to talk about here on this show. Well, I want to hear a lot more about that. For those who don't know, Jana is the Assistant Professor of Peace Studies and Christian Social Ethics at Anabaptist Mennonite BS. How do you say that now? What's the name? It's changed. It's Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. There you go. A and B. But I kind of like it. You could just call it the Anabaptist BS. That's really very interesting, Jason. That could be a new take on it. Freudian slip or something. Who knows? Wow, we're getting off to a great start this new year, folks, and uh, we're just going to keep rolling with it. So, Jana, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, about your work at ABS and your favorite course to teach? I think we'd love to hear about that. But even before that, we want to just uh, say thank you for coming on and give you a chance. If you want to expand any about uh, any more about who you are and where you come from or, or how you get to this job, well, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Well, there's so much I could say there. But maybe I'll just note by saying that I myself am a graduate of AMBS. When I was in Colombia, South America, working with Justa Paz, which is an organization of the Colombian Mennonite Church, and I worked there through Mennonite Central Committee, I was looking for peace studies programs that would allow me to combine peace building with theology. And I looked around the world. And because even though I graduated from Goshen College, I didn't have intimate familiarity with AMBS. And I looked at all kinds of programs in Europe, the United States, in Latin America, and in a very roundabout way through doing Google searches about peace, theology, violence, that I discovered AMBS <laughs> as the place that actually combines peace building and theology. And so it was through, again, this very generic Google search that I discovered that AMBS was the place where I wanted to do master's, master's work. So I took courses at a distance. And then when I moved back from Columbia, prior, while I was adjuncting at Goshen College, finished a degree at AMBS while I was applying to graduate school for, for the doctorate. I was then, after then doing the graduate work, I began working at AMBS. So I've been working with AMBS, this will be my my third year now, and the course that I feel so passionately about what I get to do here, and I love it so much that I love it that you asked the question about the favorite course, but that is kind of tricky. One course that I feel that is very important to me and I think that we are really uniquely positioned to offer is the introduction to peace building course because we are the AMBS is as far as I know the first program to combine theology and peace building into into one degree program at a master's level and We continue to then operate at the forefront, kind of the vanguard of what it means to bring peace building and theology together. And that's really what I'm able to do in the Intro to Peace Studies course. In that class, we we introduce a transformative approach to peace building and look at the ways that Anabaptist theologies and Anabaptist tradition 
has been crucial to the development of a transformative approach. So eschatology, Anabaptist tradition, praxis through service, then the experiences that come with these forms of knowledge and with these experiences around the world were absolutely critical in the development of what is in some some institutions called strategic peace building and others transformative peace building. So for me, it's a gift and a joy to be able to introduce these approaches that integrate ground up ways of thinking about change with state oriented processes and embrace different methods and different ways of knowing for um, holistic approaches to peace building. So that's some of what we do in the introduction to to peace studies class. And this is a, a core course. And from there, then students are able to move into different terrains, different pathways, different kinds of vocations, different methods that most appeal to them or align with their sense of call, but doing so within a broader framework and understanding how they are in conversation with different people, with different communities around the world, with different kinds of peace-building processes as church, as social movements, as communities. And so when you say core course, that's, that means it's part of like the general education that every AMBS student would take, is that right? Every student that has peace studies, either as their major or as a concentration. Interestingly, at Peace Lab, some of the conversations that we're trying to have are about how these concepts of peace or peace building um, integrate in many different spheres and how people think about that in lots of different places in their lives. And you shared with us that you spent some time in Colombia, I think eight and a half years working there. And, and, you know, as you made your return to the States then and we're starting this work, how did that time in Colombia, your work there, um, your work now, how has that shaped how you think about peace, not just in your work, but also in other spheres of your life as well? When we were in Colombia, we just, we, we being my husband and I, we loved our work in Colombia. We loved our lives in Colombia. We loved our communities in Colombia. We felt very much at home there. But coming back also felt important and for a variety of reasons. When we came and we thought about coming, we thought about how can we be true to the people that are communities of accountability in Colombia that really shaped us and remade us into the people that we believe that we are called to be. How, how can we continue to be accountable to those learnings and to, to both their suffering and to their witness? How, how can we possibly, how can we stay accountable? How, do, how can we be true to that? Knowing that the worlds that we were entering, I was planning to go into a PhD program at some point, and my husband, too, was, went on to do work. He's now a lawyer. How do we avoid seduction of middle-class America, of the, of the everyday? And something that was part of the response was to identify other, other people who were committed to living lives in community 
and to stay accountable to communities on the margins. And I was having a conversation with one of my AMBS professors about this vision of church at one point, and she said, well, if that's how you understand church, you really need to go and speak with Cana community in South Bend, Indiana. And so that is basically how we came to be a part of what is an intentional neighbors group that we, we call ourselves Cana community. So it's a small group. There are four families, but we commit to sharing our lives through being accountable to one another, to being vulnerable, to being available. And we do that with one another in the small group. And we also work to be, like we said, intentional neighbors with those around us who are obviously, who are perhaps obviously, outside of this small group. And that has been a, a crucial part of being, of being of, of our lives here. And now, since we've been here for six years now, for our daughters as well, this is a, an integral part of, of their childhood. And that's important to us. So that, that would be one, one dimension that, of our lives that doesn't often come out in, in conversations about what we do professionally. And this is a part of a larger response because this is the way in which we are rooted in our very local community. And we are trying to listen to the needs and goals of those in our immediate vicinity and while simultaneously the, the work that I'm able to do through AMBS allows me to, to work with people, Mennonites and others, who are interested in an Anabaptist vision of peace building, to try to think together and train together to, to be a part of this ongoing movement of Anabaptism. And then the consultancy work in my work in Columbia has allowed me then to work on an international level. So I feel so very fortunate that these different pieces are converging that allow me to not just speak and teach about engagement as church on multiple levels, but actually embody that. We can do this. We are doing it. You bring so much to the table in terms of peacemaking here with your experience in Columbia and then your academic work and now also just your, your everyday being church together and, and what that means. I wonder if we could pick your brain a little bit here. Our, our nation and it kind of flows down almost. It seems like there's conflict of, at every level of society in, in our churches in our country and uh, in families. Uh, conflict seems heightened in this past year, 18 months or whatever. Are, are there you know some, some things that you would point out to our listeners that say, you know what, when you're facing conflict that seems intractable, whether that be on the big systemic level for countries or, or maybe even down to smaller levels, what are some things that we should watch out for or some things that we should be noticing about conflict that will just help us better, not always solve it, but at least navigate it so we know we know the situation we're in? What I come back to, and this is consistent with the training that I have received academically, as well as what my experience has been in, in war zones in Colombia, is that Relationships are crucial. It's really striking to see even, we don't even need to go, like you're saying, to read national papers, but to even one's Facebook feed. The polarization and the vitriol is, it's everywhere. How do we stay in relationship with people who see things really differently and feel things really differently than we do? 
how do I have a relationship with someone who maybe for some of us, the, it's first and foremost, it's not that their color is different than mine or it's not that, but it might be what, what they're reading is different and their news source is different. How do we bridge some of those lines? Because right now some of those ideological and theological lines are drawn. The lines seem to be brighter, increasingly bright. And this is where I think the the project of church and our call to be church is absolutely crucial. Because if there is one place where we're going to be able to find a convergence of people with different kinds of political and theological commitments, it's probably going to be in Christian churches right now. So if we can do that hard work of continuing to show up and talk together, actually ask one another, what is it that Jesus is calling us to do? What is it that I think that God's vision for the world is? And what does that require of me? What does that require of us? Me and us can be conceived of in multiple ways here, especially the us, right? So I think that the building the relationship part is the going local and finding finding ways of building these unlikely relationships and having difficult conversations to use some of the that's actually technical language, although it sounds very everyday. Difficult conversations and with an unlikely relationships on all levels, I think, is my short answer to that question. It's interesting to think about how church is getting shaped by this polarization, too, and what are the strategies we need to employ in those relationships to make sure church doesn't become another sphere, though, that ends up just as polarized as other places and spaces. Yes, not Exactly. And I want to say and where it's not just a default to let's all just get along, where it's not just let's not talk about those hard things because because you can have a kind of false and very meek unity if we're not actually having substantive conversations and I believe that we are more than that. I think we can have substantive conversations and continue to be in conversation. I think that there's a it's it's easy to make to suggest a kind of false trade-off there. And I don't want to do that. Right. And we're recording this soon after the holidays, and I feel like a lot of the advice that that gets given across the holidays is hey, just, you know, avoid any hot button conversations with people who think differently than you. If you're going home to be with your family, don't have these conversations and are you calling us to have those conversations but to think about how we do it and what the groundwork is that we need to lay to to be able to do that you know it would be interesting to create some really basic resources on that front they're in our textbooks but maybe we should make those more readily available right well this is you know it's interesting to think about your work has spanned a number of different types of conflict in Colombia, and now in Colombia, there's this post-accord work that's happening and i know you've been a part of that too this this work that's happening after peace accords have been negotiated. For people who have been following the story of conflict in Colombia, if you could say a little bit about what your work there has looked like and what you're learning in that. Maybe just a refresher to have some of the, the timeline in mind. Last November, the government of Colombia and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, better known by the acronym FARC, 
signed what is now the final peace agreement. And so we have now gone through the first year of peace accord implementation, which according to researchers of peace agreements is a a really crucial time frame because it is during this time that citizens solidify a sense of their own relationship to the peace agreement and an evaluation of a peace agreement. And so it's, it's really a very important window. The first year is an important window. The communities that I've been working with have been enacting transitions from more violence to less violence or from violence to peace for decades while the conflict has been ongoing. And they've been clamoring for a negotiation between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, better known by the acronym FARC, and the government of Colombia throughout this time, again, for decades. The, the news that there was going to be negotiations and there was going to be an, an agreement was very exciting. The, the Colombian peace agreement is historic in Colombia because it formally puts an end to a conflict of more than 50 years between the FARC and the government of Colombia. Certainly, there are legal, political, economic, and logistical hurdles of all kinds in trying to make the commitments and the aspirations of the peace commitment a reality. One thing that I want to note is that it is innovative. And one of the innovations of this peace agreement is that it has a territorial focus. And what territorial participatory focus looks like here is to recognize, at least in terms of the discourse of the agreement and in terms of the the discourse that the government of Colombia has used, is to recognize that communities in rural areas are the sources of what they of what they call the new energy for a Colombia that is to be reborn. The Christian religious language is unmistakable here in terms of the, the possibility for a rebirth. For the communities that I have been working with, this is an incredible opportunity, and it has been an incredible opportunity to really bring to bear the work and the experiences of enacting peace amidst war that they have been experiencing for decades. And so communities that were eclipsed, ignored, excluded, again, for decades, experience, that was really valuable. And for me, that was a lesson in the importance of collaboration, because it was not just valuable for the government of Colombia to be able to point to these communities and say, look, if these communities can enact transitions from violence to peace, we can on a national level. And in so doing, borrow and rely on the moral power of communities that are non-reliant on state power. So borrowing the moral power of Christian communities in order to try to leverage support in the international community, so that in itself is fascinating. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with the idea in terms of in, in Anabaptist theologies of communities contributing to, to state processes. What was interesting to me is to note that these communities really benefited deeply <laughs> from acknowledgement from the state and from the dominant communities that had excluded them for decades and decades. 
And so we really do. This is a case in which church communities also receive from the state. That's not something that we so easily tend to recognize in, in Anabaptist theologies. That was a part of the experience that was very interesting and meaningful. That has not continued as we'd like. At the same time, that is an innovation of the Clement Peace Agreement. It is not something that you see in other peace agreements, this kind of territorial focus that very explicitly relies on the experiences of rural communities in the territories and to engage them in a very participatory manner as a part of democracy building. So that was something that was very exciting to see. And then the work that I was doing this past semester is akin to this in that what we tried to do with three different church-based networks was to find points of contact between the concrete commitments in the peace agreement between the government of Columbia and the FARC and ecumenical groups. And so in one case, we worked with issues of trauma and reparations to victims. In another case, we worked with questions of development. And in the third case, we worked with gender questions. And all three of these cases, part of what we're, what we're looking to do is to cultivate collaboration between the different actors on the ground so that when the inevitable outbreaks of violence and setbacks and implementation and problems arise, that there can be a joint sense of ownership of a vision of building peace and not simply the disappointment that the government that committed to delivering peace failed to do so, when theologically we know that that's an impossibility. But these were very concrete exercises in trying to establish these points of contact and develop strategies for fostering collaboration. Extremely helpful for someone even someone like me who reads about the conflict in bits, spurts and bits in the news and not really knowing what's going on behind the scenes. It's interesting to hear some of the things that you highlight in Columbia are things that continue to shape you, it seems like. The, the unique and important role of church, uh, the, the need for theological uh, you know, density and training and knowledge. And so it's interesting to see how your, your own story is, is uh, sort of colliding or has been shaped with the time in Columbia. I, I'm wondering if you would uh, share with us a little bit, uh, maybe going from one conflict to another. Sorry to, to do this to you, but uh, I guess you... You're in the middle of, uh, of AMBS, or you're a professor there. And, of course, a conflict that's been going on for quite a while uh, swirls around uh, issues about John Howard Yoder uh, and his uh, predatory behavior, I guess is, is one way to put it, uh, and uh, the, the victims and then the aftermath. And, and what do we do with the legacy of one of the most prominent Mennonite theologians? And, and I'll just you know, put my cards on the table. And so, you know, I wasn't raised Mennonite. Uh, I had a lot of things going on, but one of the key things for me to open my mind to, to Anabaptist thought was the politics of Jesus. And so then where do we put him in the canon now? And even more, I guess, interesting is, is the, the courses you teach and the place you occupy was Yoder's, I guess, uh, uh, previously. So I, I guess we're wondering, uh, how are you addressing that, you know, personally and in your classroom? What do we do with this, uh, with this legacy of a, of a theologian with, um, who really had such great moral failings? Well, yes, you're right. It has been a major question here. In fact, the first activity that I participated in 
as a faculty member at AMBS, were the services of lament at AMBS several years ago. That was profound and a difficult but very meaningful and telling way to begin my time at AMBS because it was laying plain this reality that I, I have no choice but to navigate. And in saying that, I am saying that I do not believe that it is helpful to do the ban and burn tactic, go in the way of banning and burning Yoder's work for a couple of reasons. One is because he has been such a prominent figure. I think it would be just very, very confusing and unclear if there was to be some kind of official silencing. I think that would simply be confusing on a practical level. And that's related to the more substantive response. And that is that Yoder has been highly influential. And so even if we were to ban and burn his work, his categories of thought, his theological categories and his thought is present in other theologians. It's present in the thought patterns, the ways of thinking and the ways of being of other theologians and in our in our churches. So it seems like an artificial move and a rather even dishonest move to try the, the banning and burning. So what I am doing in my classes and in, in other spaces as well and in some of, some of the writing that I'm doing is to, to look at John Howard Yoder's work and say that this has been the default model of for thinking about peace building theologically, not only in Anabaptist circles, but in Christian ethics circles. And to note, these are some of the contributions. And one, these are some of the ways in which his work, there is fit, though not entailment, between his work and his abuse on the one hand. And then I also note the ways in which the communities that I've worked with in Colombia, and here I'm referring to marginalized Christian communities that are not reliant on the state as agents of change, but do intersect with the state in peace building initiatives. These are communities that should vindicate John Howard Yoder's work. And they actually point to his limitations, but they also, and perhaps more importantly for me, because I do want to focus, I want to be very clear about what are the limitations, and so we have to be critical. But how do we move forward? I'm really interested in doing the constructive work. <laughs> I'm really not interested in recentering John Howard Yoder through just talking about even critique. So how do these communities that should vindicate him point to his limitations, and how are they gesturing towards a way forward? for thinking about constructive approaches to political theologies of peace building. That's really what I'm very interested in. So this is the way that I approach Yoder's work, is to say, here we have what has been a default model. Here are some of the significant contributions. This is why he is considered to be an important figure in the field, writ large. Here are the problems, and here are the ways that we are moving forward, not because of Yoder. <laughs> Hear me clearly here. I'm not talking about correcting Yoder for Yoder's sake. I'm talking about the importance of having theologies of nonviolent peace building. And this is where, from, as someone who 
is working with Anabaptist traditions and working first and foremost with local communities who are victims of armed conflict, but not first victims, are agents of change. This is where eschatologies become very important for me. And so I want us to be able to articulate political theologies that are, for me, rooted in eschatologies that are able to illuminate what's going on on the ground and provide a framework for thinking about peace building as Christians. That's really important to me. And there are points of contact with different kinds of messianic eschatologies, which Yoder made normative for Christian churches. But I want to note what are the contributions of messianic eschatologies, and then how do, we, how do we think moving forward? What else must be done so that we can have theologies of nonviolent peacebuilding that actually are nonviolent and that are not actually complicit with the kind of abuse that Yoder was perpetrating? That's well said. Thank you for that answer. Well, I did just want to ask, you did just recently write sort of in dialogue with Stanley Hauerwas, kind of very public conversation that's happening right now. I mean, you are one of a number of respondents to Stanley Hauerwas. His attempt to address Yoder's abuse, uh, Hauerwas is someone who is close to Yoder. I wonder if you'd kind of give our listeners a Cliff Notes version of, of that exchange. And many people found Hauerwas's used to be woefully inadequate, especially as it pertained to care for the survivors of Yoder's abuse. So Stanley Hauerwas is someone who is obviously very close to Yoder and is deeply informed by Yoder. And he's someone that I respect very much and have also been influenced by. I was sad when I read his, his response. And I think it's important to be fair here. And as I noted in the in the piece, he may or may not have intended for that to be published anywhere. Or it, here's as though it was what he shared at the Society of Christian Ethics one year ago. What I think was sad for me is that I really want us to, in grappling with John Howard Yoder's legacy, what I want to see, what I think is really required here, is not just recalibration, which is what I understood Hauerwas to be doing in this piece is to how do we recalibrate when we learn things that are so disappointing and so painful, but not just to recalibrate, which allows us to stay steady and even allows us to stay in some kind of steady relationship with, with Yoder because part of what was disappointing there was that it, it seemed to continue it was a, as a dialogue between Hauerwas and Yoder. I think that part of our recalibration here requires a kind of reorientation. And I was thinking quite a bit about the notion of repentance. And so one of the points that we, we teach at the seminary quite a bit is that repentance means turning. And I think that part of what is required here is for us to make the turn towards victims, particularly victims of Yoder's abuse. And I want to read, I want to draw to your attention, there's a a passage from a piece in Marginalia. I'm going to, to read this. I think this is really helpful because there's someone from very much out, this Ellison notes that the truly exemplary theologian activists of Christian nonviolence are the women survivors of Yoder's abuse. 
Against the odds, they courageously stepped forward, demanded justice, not retribution, and called both Yoder and the wider Mennonite community to account. We should honor the collective power and wisdom of such communities of resistance and alternative consciousness as sources of fresh theological vision and truth-telling, not only about violence and violation, but also about the requirements of authentic peacemaking and relational justice. I so deeply appreciate that perspective in noting that what is required is not just recalibration on our part, but a kind of reorientation. And to see this as an opportunity and not just a threat, that's something that in doing peace building, we talk about quite a bit, is seeing the problems and conflicts as opportunity and not just threats. And obviously that is so hard, (laughs) but that is what's before us. That is precisely what is before us. So how do we see this as new opportunity and that is that requires of us a kind of reorientation and a reorientation that requires a turn? A turning and and here turning towards towards victims. And here we have theologian activists who are doing just that. So I see because a number of these women are professors that I have had at Mennonite institutions, and they are a part of they are a part of my training. Their encouragement was crucial to me as a as a curious student in undergrad and masters, and then they were very supportive of me in Columbia. And it's very meaningful to me to see them recognized as theologian activists because it is their support that also allows me to bring the marginalized communities of Colombia into conversation with them. So it's not just a matter of the marginalized communities in Colombia that I have worked with most closely being helpful conversation partners in thinking about what does it mean to go beyond Yoder's work in nonviolent theologies of peacebuilding, but it's because of them that at least I am able to bring these other voices to the fore that help to gesture towards a way forward alongside them. And that feels really meaningful to me. That feels really meaningful to be able to to think about helping to, and with students, articulate political theologies that center marginalized voices, oppressed voices, with the purpose of liberation and building peace. That feels really valuable. Um, if people want to find you or follow you, are you online anywhere? Is there an MBS course online that they should sign up to take? What's the best way for people to get in touch? I'm going to teach a course this summer on peace processes and with a focus on the Colombian peace process, looking at the role of theology and peace processes. And I would warmly welcome newcomers. AMBS.edu, right? I'm sure they can find more information. Thanks for listening to Peace Lab. Peace Lab is a production of the Midnight Magazine and website and the Peace and Justice Support Network.